Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To make it, to be great at anything, the traditional ordinary route doesn't always work. Sometimes you have to go out of bounds, seeking out a path that looks like no one else's, hustling, trusting your gut, even when other people tell you no. I'm Hannah Waddingham, and this is Hustle Rule, an audio docuseries featuring the untold stories of women soccer players around the world, based on the book Under the Lights and in the Dark, written by Gwendolyn Oxenham. Like the story you're about to hear, I know what it's like to be just outside your dream, to be on the brink, to have to keep pushing and pushing. In my own life, I did have to fight for every step of my success. Before I got Ted Lasso, I had been hammering at the door of television for a really, really long time, for like 25 years. I always got what I refer to as the also-ran parts, but I could never land the main role because I was in musical theatre, a leading lady on the West End stage. People treated me like, well, you're mainly a singer. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not. Give me a chance. This is the story of a relentless chase, a player's refusal to give up. This episode is La Gringa, the Ali Long story. Here's Gwen, our author. While writing my book, I was interested in the players so close to their football dreams, who put in triple days to stay ready and still don't get picked for the national team. 23 players make the World Cup roster. What's it like to be player 24? You watch your best friends make the team when they're 19, 20 years old. How does it feel to be nearly 30, still holding on, still hoping. Even though that's around the age, most of your heroes start retiring. But Allie still told herself, one day I'll play in the Olympics. 
all play in the World Cup. And to do that, to get there, she knew it would take something a little different, something nobody else was doing. In this episode, we head to the underground leagues in New York to cutthroat games with high stakes, big crowds and cash prizes, where Ali Long plays against the men. This will be her proving ground. The environment is something that I've never experienced anywhere else in my life. The games were crazy intense. There's a lot of people, thousands of people. There's sometimes that like you could barely play. They're all like almost inside the field. Like you gotta be pushing people around, and, and especially when there's big tournaments like that, you play for ten thousand dollars like one day. There's music blasting. You have people in the in the corner selling food and panadas, rice and beans, beers, drinks. And then everyone's yelling, screaming, every shot they take, every goal they score. Literally, there's a guy walking around taking bets with his little chart and taking cash and kind of just being the bookie on the spot. There's a lot at stake, whether it's, you know, a check, whether it's just playing for pride. And the level and the speed of play that they were playing at was insane. In these leagues, there's a lot of pro players. You see a lot of, like, ex-World Cup players, ex-national team players, Colombian, Peruvian, Paraguayan. You see all these players in these gyms playing because they still love the game. It's an atmosphere that nobody wants to miss, especially being a footballer. You see things that you've never seen around anywhere. I would sit on the sideline and I'm like, I just want to play so bad. In her gut, she knew this was where she was supposed to be. She just had to prove it. Can she hang with the men? It's a good question. And to answer it, you'd have to know a little bit about how Allie ended up here in the first place. Let's rewind to suburban Long Island, late 1980s. Allie has been playing against guys since the very beginning. She started playing soccer when she was four on a team, and she was crazy, and she was so into it. It was a co-ed league, and she would go there, and she would run over all the little boys and score goals and then just jump up and cheer. You could say it's genetic. Allie's mom, Barbara, has been playing her whole life, and she passed her love of the game on to Allie. My mom is actually such a G. She still plays pickup to this day. With guys, she's like the only girl. But um, growing up, she played in a women's league. So she used to bring me to her games every weekend. We used to go out and on the street in front of our house and kick the ball back and forth for hours and count how many times we could get it back and forth. And it would get dark out and we'd still be playing because the street lights would come on. And I love that summer air. And we finally, my husband would call us and say, come on in, you know, we have to go in now, you know. And when she was 11 years old, Allie made up her mind. She was going to play for the U.S. women's national team. Ever since I saw the 99ers win the World Cup, I knew right then that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't even think of another option. My mind was set. I wanted to play for the U.S. women's national team, and I wanted to win a World Cup. There was one national team player in particular who Allie really looked up to. I loved Mia Hamm growing up. I wanted her to sign anything. I didn't care. And one day, she got her chance. Here's her dad, James. Allie's grandfather, her biggest supporter, bought us tickets to a national team game against Australia. 
And as the game came to an end, I say to my wife, I go, where's Allie? And she says, I don't know, where's Allie? And I go to my phone, I go, where's Allie? Go, I don't know. So then everybody's like five deep at the fence, at the ground floor of the uh, stands, because all the girls were coming around giving autographs, except for Mia. She was across the stadium from where I was sitting, like where she chose to go sign. Next thing you know what, I thank God I see her on her hands and knees and she's crawling between people's legs like five deep i'm talking five deep and next thing you know what i see her climb over the fence i'm like what so then i shoot down and i'm behind her and actually i had to uh push a few people out of the way and i see her now she's running across the field I literally like hopped the fence. I don't even know how this happened and ran to where she was. And I was like, can you sign this? And she signed it. And I like hopped the fence back over. And my dad was like, you're out of your mind, but good job. You got her signature. She is relentless. She perseveres in every avenue and everything she does. And that's what makes all those champions champions. Her Mia obsession is part of why she transferred from Penn State University to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, a legendary program for women's soccer. North Carolina for me was where the best of the best play. That's where Mia Hamm went. You know, I wanted to be just like her, do what she did and stepping on the same field that Mia did and being coached by the same coach that coached me and hearing what he said to her and he's talking to me about it. Here's head coach Anson Dorrance describing Allie. I mean, she was sort of a, a street fighter, uh, and we certainly like that quality in her. She is very good in possession. She sees the field beautifully. Her decision-making is exquisite. But the ring that rules them all is competitive fire. And if you want to have one ring to try to build your game on, that's probably the most critical one. And she had that in spades. The summer after her junior year at UNC, Allie's longtime club coach invited her to train with his men's semi-pro team in Long Island. And on the first day of practice... We're playing like 5v5, and it was five minutes or two goals. So whoever was winning at the end of five minutes, or if you score two goals, then another team comes on. And so my team, we didn't even last the five minutes. Like right away, the team scored two goals. It was the third time that this happened. We're running off the field, and one of the guys on my team was like we keep losing, like made a comment under his breath, like, oh, we keep losing. And as I'm running past this guy to like go to the sideline, he's like, it's because you have a girl on your team. And I was like, are you kidding me? Who is this kid? I literally hated him. I think after that game though, my team won every game. Like I made sure of it because he made that comment. So I appreciate him (laughs) inspiring me to like, just shut him up. (laughs) The guy who enraged Allie Jose Batista, but most people call him Bati. She hated me after that. I guess just just because she was on that team and they lost so quick, I like blamed her for it, kind of, you know? I mean, I thought it was also funny, but yes, I for sure meant it. But they ended up doing well. I'm like, wow, like she's really good. But despite the rough start, he broke her down, joke by joke, play by play. So Bati's like really funny. And so he would always make these like little comments. And I was trying not to laugh at his jokes. As the summer went on and the more we played with each other, I got to know him off the field and like totally understand the person he was on the field. 
I gave myself the opportunity to get to know him because before that, there was zero chance that I wanted anything to do with him. But once I was cool with him and I guess like started to like him, I brought that up immediately. I was like, are you serious? That was your comment, your very first comment. And he just like thinks it's so funny. He's like, I was obviously joking. I said it as you're running by, so you heard me just mess with you. I just decided to give her to give her banter just to see how she would react to it. And yeah, she didn't take it lightly, but I thought it was hysterically funny. Ali and Bati start training together outside of practice, hitting long balls, talking smack, learning each other's tendencies. I've always been so impressed with the confidence that he has when he plays. Going up to a PK, he's always the fifth shooter, the one to kind of like solidify the win, and he would just chip the keeper every single time. I think just always having fun with each other, joking with each other is kind of like what was like the foundation of our relationship. Also like his belief in me, his support in me, it was unfamiliar from just a guy athlete. They understood each other and played off of one another, on the field and off of it. Little by little, they began introducing each other to their worlds. When Allie left for her senior year at UNC, Bati and his friends regularly made the 10-hour drive to see her play. I'm packing this car out with as many friends as I can, you know. I remember going to see UNC versus Duke, and we thought it was so cool. Like, the rivalry, the tackling is extra, the cheering is extra. Just to witness all of that, it was cool. Especially, like, my friends who didn't go to college who got to witness that. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. And after Ali takes Bati to her games, Bati introduces her to the games that meant the most to him. These underground futsal leagues with men from all over the world. Futsal is a fast-paced, smaller version of soccer, usually five a side, played on a gym court using a smaller, harder ball. It originated in the 1930s in Uruguay. Football means everything to my family. They're immigrants from South America. My dad's Brazilian, my mom's Colombian, so it runs in the blood. I started going to these leagues to watch my dad and his friends play. The leagues have a rich history of fathers passing down the game to their sons. Here are Bhatti and his friends explaining the game's roots. It started as like a Hispanic thing where families would come together and rent these gyms out and play and then it got so competitive that these families started getting ringers and like giving them money to help them play with their team to try and win and that's how it just kept growing and growing and then the money just started getting better and better. My mom would have me in the stroller, we'd be eating empanadas, you know, on the sideline and just hanging out. My dad being from Colombia, he came over here and, you know, back then there was no real professional league in the U.S. And this was the only place to play for these guys. And there was just so many good players. It was insane. That's Mike Palacio. He played for the New York Red Bulls for two years. And he's one of the guys who plays on Bati's futsal team. So my dad would be going from game to game, hustling, playing in these games where each country had a league. You know, you have the Peruvian league. They paid this amount. My dad would be on a team there. That would be a game at 9 a.m. in Brentwood. And then at 5 o'clock, he would have a game in Flushing with the Colombian league. You know, he's making $500 a game. 30 years ago, he made a good living doing this. My name is Mohamed Mashriki from Flushing, Queens, New York, born and raised. I played soccer for the national team of Afghanistan for about four years. And uh, I played soccer in underground leagues actually since I was uh, 14 and up until these days. There are crowds you get, you know, wrapped around the field. They put the pressure on you, you know. Then we have Diego Boludo. He is Argentinian, probably one of my favorite people to be around. His Argentinian barbecues are the best, but um, he's he just played in gyms his whole life. I'm from New York and just uh, a regular street baller, pretty much. You know, a guy that uh, loves soccer. You know, I've been playing soccer since I'm three years old and, and I've been doing it ever since. 
My name is Alan Acevedo. I grew up in Medellin, Colombia. I was uh, nine years old when I got here. I used to work at a hotel in the city. Now in the housekeeping department. I quit my, my job just to dedicate myself to playing those leagues because the money was really good. I call him the king of underground leagues because he made a killing. He was sick. The most I got in a game, half an hour game, I'm talking about 15 minute halves. It was $1,300. Allen, along with another kid on the team, Jules Escobar, actually went on to play with the U.S. national futsal team. When I first told Ali about it, obviously she had no idea. And she was like, what? She wanted to come. She was like all about it. She was really excited. And then she came to my first game. I knew how good Bati was. I knew how good his friends were, but I didn't know how good the other players were and how the other teams were. I'm in street clothes. I am probably getting an empanada. I am enjoying my time. I watched it in a way to like kind of learn the game as well. I would want to know how did they just get out of that situation or what made them shoot the ball that way or how did they get free? Their movement off the ball, on the ball was so intriguing to me. So I loved it kind of almost as like a student watching and a fan watching. But of course, I was dying to play. We were scared to play her because, you know, she's playing at a high level and I, we didn't want her to get hurt. That's Alan. And here's Bhakti. It's not like a normal soccer game in the sense where the refs are going to call everything, you know, a foul's a foul. No, in these leagues, they let a little more go than usual. So there's a lot of body contact. There's a lot of pushing and shoving. So I was always scared for something that happened to her or her to get hurt. There's always a fight or about to be a fight almost every single match that I've, I watched up until that point. So I, when they said I didn't want to get injured, I understood in a sense. I was like, OK, I see what you mean. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. So for the first couple of seasons, Allie would just watch the games from the sidelines. She graduates from UNC, and then she starts playing professionally for the Washington Spirit. In 2010, she even got called up to play with the full U.S. national team. It did not go well. Second day of camp, she tore her MCL. I attempted to train, like I tried to pretend that I was fine, but I just couldn't move at all. In that moment, I was obviously devastated. After that camp, I kind of had this mindset of like, okay, what do I need to, you know, improve on? My mentality was like, I have to be so good that they literally couldn't ignore me. Four months after camp, her knee's better. She's in New York watching Bati and his friends play in a 4v4 footballito tournament with a $3,000 cash prize. And she's more hungry than ever. One of our good friends gets a red card right away. And so they're down a player. And I'm just like, I can go in. Like, hello. First thing she says, like, I have my stuff. And they're like looking at me and they're like, no. And all of a sudden the other team scores. And right away, I'm like, I'm out. I'm getting my stuff. So I like ran out to the car. I come back and I just felt... Like, I knew that I needed to play fast. I needed to, like, be confident. And I needed to go in and, like, almost, like, prove myself. Because the game happens so fast. The, the spaces are so small. The ball's small. And they're closing you down faster. The first ball I get, like, I make a pass. Goal. I remember her going for her first tackle. I remember clear because it's one of the things I was like most worried about and she actually won that tackle and I was like okay (laughs) okay she can hang here's Alan so the guy started talking like talking bad about her like oh you can't even play this what are you doing here like I'm scared to hit you like I feel bad for you and she met them actually the crowd went nuts It was just so fun to be on the court with them and to be able to score and like assist and win that game when they were losing was one of the best feelings. And to this day, I still talk to them for it. Let me tell you, Ali played the freaking game of her life. That's Diego. We beat them, we made it to the final. And there's so many kids, little kids, different ages, you know, girls. He was following us all over the place. Obviously, Ali, you know, because all the girls were, like, so amazed. The little girls were like, oh, my God, how she plays so good. The following weekend, I started talking to my teammates and coaches and, like, yo, let's give Ali, like, five or ten minutes and here and there. And then that's how it went until she became one of us. (laughs) 
you start hearing like whispers and like my friends on other teams are like, is Ali playing with you guys? I'm like, yeah, she's playing today. A lot of times after the big game that day, a lot of people leave. Everyone stayed to watch us play. And I think it was more to watch her play, to see how she would do, to see this girl gonna play with the men. The whistle's about to blow and the other team's looking at your team and you're looking at them and you're kind of just seeing like, who's on the other team? Are they good? Are they not? Like, what's this game going to be? Every time I'm on the field, right away, it's like, okay, they have a girl on their team. They're thinking that I'm going to be nowhere near as good as them without ever seeing me play. It's almost like they will let me have the ball first. They won't really like pressure me. Right away, I'm like, oh, you're going to give me space? Let's go. <laughs> and then as soon as I start playing, they're like, okay. They know that they have to play me as if I'm a guy. I always loved it because it made me play like it was the World Cup final every single time I was on the field. Occasionally, there'd be someone who didn't want her out there. And it was a playoff match, so the game was intense. Loser goes home. And we were playing like older guys and... I played a one-touch pass, and he kind of just came in right behind me and, like, hit me a little bit late. And I said something to him back, like, are you serious or what are you doing? And he, like, responded in Spanish, like, go play with dolls. And I actually didn't know what dolls translation was in Spanish. All of a sudden, the guys are, like, in his face, and I'm like, what do he say? What do he say? And right away, I think Bati or someone said to me, he told you to go play with dolls. I was like, no, he didn't. Are you kidding me? Um, but yeah, so after that, I was like, oh, I'm going to like, I have to just like score as many goals as possible. Um, we won. And I don't know if I scored that many, but I scored a couple. And I, I think I said like, you go play with dolls at the end. I didn't even know how to pronounce the word dolls. But guys like that were the exception. For the most part, she won everybody over. Every time she touched the ball, it was like, ole! She made a good pass, it was like, ole! Um, and then as, as time went on, all you hear is la gringa, la gringa, which means like, little white girl, the white girl, you know, the blonde girl. Like, I'll get the ball and I'll make a, the most basic pass. And I think initially they're like, kind of whistling, like, oh, she completed her pass. A condescending whistle in a way, um, but also like cheering for me too. It's a weird, it's a weird feeling. Um, and then, once they could tell that I can play, it was like, we want to watch her play this whole time, like put her in, keep her in. Um, anytime I did anything, they would cheer, clap, yell at me um, in Spanish. It definitely started as kind of like, like, oh, good for her. You know, like she's playing, cool, let's cheer for the girl. And then as I earned the respect or as the game played on, then it was more of like, okay, like we want to watch her play. There's been times where the gym is packed and we're down. We go down early and then Ali's scoring a goal here, two goals here, three goals here. And the gym's just going crazy. And then they're making fun of the other team because a girl's scoring on them. She would put on magic. She likes good footwork and all of that, and she would put on the show. Her dream, of course, is still to make the national team. After the Washington Spirit, she plays for New Jersey Sky Blue, then for Paris Saint-Germain. But she always comes back here, to these gyms across Queens. These games are what she thinks will get her there. 
But 2011 passes without getting called up. In 2012, she didn't get called up. In 2013, she's drafted to the Portland Thorns, where she will play with some of the best players in the world. Christine Sinclair, Alex Morgan, Tobin Heath. She plays more minutes than any other player on the team, and they win the championship. Still, she does not get called up. All the futsal guys pay attention. They call her or text her when she scores, when she wins, when she loses. To me, she's, she's like a sister. I call her sister. I follow all her games. You know, after the game, you know, sister, what an amazing game. You did, you know, amazing. You play sick. Keep it up. It's going to come. That's Diego. I've seen how much work she put on to be on the national team. And I remember her getting to a point of being, you know, frustrated because she'd be like, what else do I got to do? I used to tell her, I was like, listen, it's going to come no matter what. You know, it's just a matter of time. And then the U.S. Women's National Team gets a new coach. And in May 2014, after years of waiting, Allie gets an invitation to the national team training camp. Four long-ass years. This time, she doesn't get injured. She plays well in the first camp, and she gets called into another. She is in the running for a World Cup roster spot. At the end of the 2015 January camp, just a few months away from the World Cup, Allie and head coach Jill Ellis have a meeting. She sat me down and she was like, you're not in my plans for this World Cup. It takes experience to win these things, people that have been in these situations under pressure. And that was her deciding factor in that moment. And so the camp was in L.A. I flew home to New York. I think I cried the entire flight. I think the person next to me felt so bad for me. I'm pretty sure they, like, handed me tissues mid-flight. It was horrible to know that I'm so close. That was my dream. It only happens every four years. The U.S. women's side went on to win the 2015 World Cup. Allie watches from home as her friends become champions. It was hard, and at the same time, like, I want nothing but success for them, and I want them to be the best. So it was a bittersweet balance, for sure. I remember uh, when she was trying to figure out a way to get some attention and make the U.S. full national team, we would talk all the time. That's Anson Dorrance again, Allie's coach at UNC. And she kept saying, you know, Anson, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I finally said, well, Allie, let me give you the bottom line. If you score goals and create goals, it's undeniable you're going to make it. The next season, playing in the NWSL, Allie has an even bigger chip on her shoulder. When you go to the World Cup, it's a 23-man roster. When you go to the Olympics for the next year, it's an 18-man roster. And so, like, the chances of me making, if I didn't make the World Cup team at 23 players, they just won it. Why are you going to change much? to an 18-man roster, um, you know, everyone told me it'd basically, like, be impossible. And so, but I kind of like that. Like, I enjoyed them telling me that there's no chance. That season, she's named the team's most valuable player. And as a defensive midfielder, a position that doesn't typically score that much, she is the NWSL's second-leading goal scorer. But again, she doesn't get called in. 
In January of 2016, there's a national team residency camp. And of the 26 players invited, there are 10 new faces. Allie isn't one of them. It was one of the hardest things to kind of feel and and deal with at that time. That's when she got stronger, she got quicker, she got fitter. And I feel like that's when she became an all-around player, the best of the best. I was literally going to make this team or I was going to die trying. She keeps training, keeps putting in the double and triple days, just in case. And as the next NWSL preseason begins, she's still playing like an MVP, even among international stars like Amandine Henri and Lindsay Horan. I felt the best I've ever felt. The fittest, strongest, just on fire. You know, my speed of play was the best it's ever been. And before we even played our first game, I get an email from the US Women's National Team saying that I was invited into the next camp. We were driving to a team bonding experience with the Portland Thorns, and I'm in the back of the van with Tobin, and I just, like, show her my phone. And she was freaking out, but silently freaking out because she didn't want everyone in the bus to be like, what happened? And I literally, like, cried when I got it, and I couldn't believe it, but I could because, like, I felt like I knew this was going to happen. I knew that, I that like, once I got my chance that I was going to absolutely make the most of it. On April 6, the United States plays Colombia in a friendly, and Allie starts in the center of the midfield. This game, everything is on the line. This is her chance to prove she belongs. In the stands, Allie's parents and Bati, Diego, and Allen from the NYC Futsal Leagues make up the Allie fan club. I remember it like yesterday, to be honest. It's freezing. I'm talking about freezing cold. Ali's like on the brink of making the team, not making the team. Then, in the 32nd minute, it's Ali's first international goal. The far side, it's driven in, and there's a second goal. Ali Long makes it 2-0 U.S. It's a first international goal. Gives the USA a 2-0 lead. So good start for Long as well as the USA. But she's not done yet. The header, there's one. Second goal of the night for Ali Long. When she scored one goal, we were like, yes. And then she scored another, we were like, she made it. That was like the best game I've ever sat through with her because she did so well. And we knew that that was going to be her beginning on the team. But we went insane we're throwing beer we're throwing water we're jumping we're hugging we're yelling you name it we were doing it i think that game she put herself on that roster and just being there and being able to witness that and all the hard work you put in all those days you were crying all those days you didn't want to wake up all all the days you didn't want to run in the snow, train in the rain. Just like all those days was worth it. And you feel that. Every single player in those gyms, I have so much gratitude for all of them. 
Even though they made it extremely difficult, they gave me um, no room to mess up. They held me to the highest standard, and sometimes I hated them, but at the end of the day, it made me better. After two more friendlies, Jill Ellis tells everyone she'll give them a call to let them know who will be going to the Olympics. When I saw her name on my phone, I wasn't nervous, but I felt like I did everything I can. And at this point, her decision's made, so I just have to accept it. And, you know, she said, congratulations, you made the Olympic roster. And she's like, I'm so proud of you. You earned it. And I started to cry, like, on the phone. I was, like, tearing, and she was, like, (laughs) she started, like, giggling a little because it's... I guess like when I play soccer, I'm so competitive and so tears aren't like the first thing you would think of when you think of me in a sense. So, you know, I started tearing and she like knew, in, I guess, in that moment how much that meant to me. And Bati was next to me and just like gave me a hug and he was like, I'm so proud of you. Like, now let's win it. I was crying tears of happiness. And when the futsal guys found out she was going to the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics... They were so proud, so happy. You know, they're posting it anywhere on all their social media. Like, they are so outwardly proud and supportive of me and my success. And they always joke with me. It's like, because I played with them, that's why I am where I am. (laughs) And now, at age 29, Allie is a starter in her first major national team game at the Rio Olympics. Her family is there to watch. You can't believe that's where you are. You know, in Brazil, and she was starting on the Olympic team. This girl has worked her ass off. And you make me cry now. Tears coming down my eyes, saying, uh, this is what she's worked her ass off for her entire life. And it's come to fruition. And against France, Ali is named player of the game. The U.S. ends up losing to Sweden in the quarterfinals. But Ali's dream, the one she's had since she was 11, isn't over yet. She still wants to win a World Cup. And this time, in 2019, she did. All the work, all the years of training, it finally paid off. For Ali and for Bati. I mean... I basically lived my dream through Ali with her making the squad. That was one dream checked off. And then playing in the World Cup, that was another dream checked off. And then actually winning the World Cup. That is crazy to say. Ali won the World Cup. I feel like I won the World Cup. (laughs) When I look back at what my goals were and where I started and the path that I took and almost what was set forth for me to get me to where I am today. I think that playing in these leagues, the relationship with Bati, all of that essentially changed my life for the better and kind of instilled this passion, this joy, this sense of this culture that like I never really knew existed and allowing me to play in these leagues with them and everyone wanted me to make the national team go to the Olympics win a World Cup that was almost 
the guy's dream as much as it was my dream. And so, you know, their impact, their friendship, their support has made me the player I am today. These games made her tough. These games further honed that quality her parents picked up on back when she was 10. Her refusal to say no. Her competitive fire. Ali Long is relentless. And seeing the hard scrabble experiences of these guys, some who got a chance, some who did not, made her fight all the more for her own. Yet, making the national team is not really what this story is about, because no matter how far you do or do not get, a professional sports career always eventually ends. But as Italian writer Cristiano Calvina once told Gwen, football will give you much more than you could ever give it. We're all trying to find our place, to find our people. That may be the whole point of everything, And that's what Ali, and so many others, found, thanks to this beautiful game. Yes. Until, like, I'm literally carried off the field and I physically cannot move, I'm going to play forever. Join us for the next episode, The Motherlode. Production of Waffle Iron Entertainment, Range Media Partners, Observatory, Audio Up Media, and iHeartRadio. Written and directed by Gwendolyn Oxenham. Hosted by me, Hannah Waddingham, and is based on the book Under the Lights and in the Dark, written by Gwendolyn Oxenham. The executive producers are Justin Biskin from Waffle Iron Entertainment, Bo Balligan from Range Media Partners, and Sean Titone from iHeartRadio. Co-written by Ruth Hilton, produced by Gwendolyn Oxenham, Ruth Hilton, and Jordana Glick-Fransheim. Co-produced by Jimmy Jelinek and Jared Gutstadt. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Arick. Sound design and mixing by Jeremiah Zimmerman. Music by Jeff Peters and Bill Mart. Theme song performed by A1 LaFlair. You'll find more podcasts from iHeartRadio on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.